this episode, I'm joined once again by writer John Michael Greer to discuss his book, The Spirit and the Sword, and Gerard Thibault's book, The Academy of the Sword, alongside discussions on Jung, Reich, Reichenbach, Sacred Geometry, the Body, and more. I'd like to wish all my followers, subscribers, listeners, and patrons a Merry Christmas. And if you've enjoyed anything I've made this year and would like to support the podcast and gain access to some exclusive content, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, John Michael Greer, thanks once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you very much for having me on again. So, yeah, there's a couple of things to get out of the way at the start. First is that this will be the Christmas Day special. So it should be Christmas Day when I push it, put this out. So uh, Merry Christmas and Season's Greeting to everyone. Um, ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. There we go. I believe you've done that every time we've done a Christmas special. And I we, probably have, it's, yes. Yeah. It's, one of, it's one of those basic things. I don't really know what a Krampus voice should sound like. So you know, We don't have the Krampus in the UK, so I'm not... I've heard well, of you, it. You, you need to import him, good heavens. You know, what's, what's going to terrify children and make sure they actually behave themselves? <laughs> well, we, we have uh, your other Amer- the other American import, the Elf on a Shelf, the CCTV <laughs> okay, version. Of, yeah, that is terrifying. Yeah. The, the panopticon yeah. of, of Christmas. Um, so he sees you when you're sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we're going to be talking about, um, oddly, in a way oddly, because these two books are from you know i've read a lot of your work we've done a lot of interviews i've listened to a lot of your other interviews and these are the two that don't come up as often so there's two books here the spirit no. and the sword a westman a western way of swordsmanship which was 2008 uh, published mm-hmm. 2008 and then there is i'm going to mispronounce this uh, gerard thibault or thibault very close yes i i i have no capacity for pronouncing french so i will take that as given uh gerard thibault the academy of the sword and this was translated i'm assuming the translation took a long time but this was translated uh published out in 2016 now there's one thing i have to say which is a big thank you to a listener who goes by the name of tc because this book is extremely difficult to get in the uk and i was um fortunate enough to have a listener actually send me a copy so a big thank you to uh talking about swordsmanship talking about in a way, the body, physicality. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of questions I've noted down, which are actually, when I was researching this stuff and reading your work, I thought, man, these are absolutely gigantic questions, as per usual. Good. But there's also another question I want to ask you, because someone said to me, you know, you've, I think this is like our 12th interview, and they said, if you can think back to four years ago, the first question I ever ask guests is the hermetics question. And someone said, well, you've had Greer on so many times, you should re-ask him it and see if it's changed. So I don't know if you remember this, but if you could place... If you could place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation, who would you pick? Good heavens, that, that's an interesting challenge. Um, I'm sure it will be a different set than the ones that I had in mind last time because mm-hmm. um, I would want... Who would I want if I were to put three thinkers? Um, I, one of them would be William Butler Yeats. Mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of Yeats study recently, and um, of course, he was a fascinating man to listen to at the, at, under almost any circumstances. Um, let's see. Another one would be, and again, I'm going to pick them for my current my current interests. Mm-hmm. Carl um, von Reichenbach, the um, brilliant, uh, I believe it was German rather than Austrian, but don't quote me on that, um, scientist and, and chemist who played a very large role in, in attempting to discover the life force, one of those very common mistakes that scientists make that gets them cast out of the science. This is the guy who, who discovered paraffin. Okay? He, made, he made himself a multimillionaire with chemical discoveries in the fields of dyes and all this kind of stuff. And then he started paying attention to the life force, and of course he got written out all, of all the books, and everyone just rolled their eyes and turned their backs. Um, not the first time that's happened, nor the last. But von, I, I would love to see. I would love to hear what von Reichenbach would have to say. And then for the rem, the third one, um, Giambattista Vico, the Italian um, historian, mostly a historian of rhetoric and law, who um, was the first great author in the modern Western tradition of a theory of a cycle of history. Mm-hmm. And he had some remarkable things to say about it. His book is almost unreadable by, by modern the New Science, as it's called, is almost unreadable by modern standards because it's written in the style of the Renaissance. Most of us aren't used to that, but he has some amazing things to say. And yeah, so the, so uh, you know, at for, for today's um, Hermetics meeting, um, yes, I would break that out and uh, have appropriate beverages for all, and then just sit there and listen to the talk. Mm-hmm. So just. 
just uh, four years ago, it was Iamblichus, Fortuna, Nietzsche. So there's there's been some changes. There's been some changes. Um, yeah. I mean, that would be a great conversation too. Mm-hmm. So how do you think this conversation between Yates, Reckenbach, and Vico would go? Who do you think would take the stage? Um, I think well, Yates always tended to kind of hog the stage a bit. But um, you see, I think he would be totally because historical cycles were of great interest to him. He would be very interested in what Vico had to say. I don't know if he actually read Vico. I don't know whether uh, I don't know how good his Italian was because I don't think it had been translated yet. Um, and uh, von Reichenbach, from everything I gather from him, was a very very polite, very courtly gentleman, and he would have had a, he would have had a grand old time. So I don't know ultimately if anybody would have taken the stage, whether it would have been this sort of roundabout boiling over cauldron of conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, it's strange coincidence because Reichenbach may come back in, not specifically, but the idea of a life force is most definitely mm-hmm. going to come back in. Um, and this oh, yeah. is something that's fascinating me at the moment, especially the Western appreciation, or mm-hmm. as you said, the Western neglect. You know, another figure that I'm oddly uh, also very interested in the moment is not Reichenbach, but Reich, who also did exactly oh, the yes. same thing, found the yeah. uh, quote unquote <laughs> life force, and then. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Although he didn't have, he didn't have the great good fortune to be. Um, Immensely wealthy and, of course, a, a German nobleman, because von Reichenbach was 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 a count, I think, um, or no, he was a baron, excuse me. But he was certainly he was a high-ranking nobleman. You couldn't simply just throw him into prison for discovering the wrong thing. Reich was not so fortunate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I guess you know, beginning with this idea, because these the swordsmanship was almost secondary to all. What is it we're really talking about here? Which is, mm-hmm. um. The body, and mm-hmm. at foundation, actually, it's the big question of the connection between spirit and matter, which I'll get to. Mm-hmm. But before we do so, um, you know, as I said, these these this topic isn't as touched upon by you, but you've obviously written mm-hmm. and practiced it a lot. So I I understand that you you obviously practice swordsmanship, but you also mm-hmm. you the martial art you mostly practice Tai Chi, I believe. That's correct. Tai Chi. Yeah. Chi. So is those, are those yeah. your two main forms of we could say, um very clear physical practice which has a it's, spiritual uh, It's component. more complex than that. Um, many years ago, in my teens, I actually studied Hatha Yoga for, for an extended period. And then I got into Tai Chi, and I've, I've kind of moved in and out of various modes of engagement with Tai Chi for some years. Then I got involved. I started chasing Western swordsmanship. In there, I also practiced Aikido for a while. And um, I got involved in Western swordsmanship, first of all, through the the, the sort of fragmentary system that I, I talk about in The Spirit and the Sword. Then I ran across the Thibault's manuscript and um, slowly translated that over a period of um, almost a decade and worked with people who were involved in the revival of Western martial arts who, who knew about rapier fencing and so on. And then in the course of that, realizing that I really did need some, some solid grounding in a martial art, I got involved with a, a Taiji school in Seattle and practiced Taiji for a great many years, and about, about a decade all told. And there and also in Ashland, where one of, one of my Seattle teachers' main students had moved to Ashland and opened a school of his own, Ashland, Oregon, I should say. And then, um, let's see, then I moved, I kind of, Got involved in some other things at that point um, with less of a focus on exercise. Um, I practiced the Five Rites, also known as the Five Tibetans, for a while, and um, also a kind of deriv- a, a system more or less derivative from Tai Chi called Tai Chi Chur. Uh, or Taiji Chi, depending on how you pronounce it. Various people give it different spins. And uh, yeah, I've done all kinds of stuff. So what I know is about these these forms of, of quote unquote martial arts, which you've you've taken up. The reason I put that in quotation marks is it, there isn't these are forms which don't have the emphasis, say, with certain types of karate or other things, which is to do with uh, hostility in a way of attack and defense. These are mm-hmm. these have a, a greater emphasis on some force. Um. Well, and again, that varies. <laughs> um. Thibaut, no, Thibaut's rapier system has no reference to life force at all. Mm-hmm. It is remarkably similar to Aikido in some ways, and, and we can get to that in the discussion. But whether the, the, rel- the life force spiritus, as it was called in Latin in those days, whether that was part of the practice, um, it didn't go into Thibaut's book at all. 
he is entirely focused on the mind, focused on geometry. And his system is also, the, the normal end of a rapier duel was one or both people dropped dead. It was not a gentle instrument, and, and he focused on that. The basic, the basic end for one of the sequences in Thibault's book is that somebody gets killed. So attack and defense, oh yeah. Um, but the other things, the, the other practices, the other um, martial and, and quasi-martial practices that I got into, yeah, they're much more focused on, on the life force, on an energy that bridges the gap between what, what we call spirit and matter. Mm. So why, why the interest in swordsmanship then? Um, partly because I was, you know, I was a geeky child who read lots of trashy fantasy novels. Mm. You know, the idea, the idea of brandishing a sword had a very strong emotional charge for me, uh, you know, growing up on, on Tolkien and all this kind of stuff. Um, partly because um, when, I, this, when, when I stumbled across the fragmentary system of swordsmanship that I ended up assembling into a complete system for spirit and the sword, it was a system of swordsmanship and not of something else. When I ran across a book that combined martial arts and sacred geometry, Thibault's manuscript, that also was a book of swordsmanship and not something else. If it had been a system of wrestling, I would have, I would have, you know, written about that instead. Mm-hmm. But um, it, that was what came up. Now it does. It probably didn't hurt that uh, the Taiji style that I practice also includes two different um, techniques for two different varieties of sword. <laughs> so. I, but I also I also learned um, you know the the short staff and a few other things. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you still practice anything uh, almost as part of your routine? If you don't mind me asking. Um, these days I've I've been doing I've been doing a range of other things for a while. I was working on a system of, of physical exercise that um, kind of connects to the prehistory of the five rites, which I mentioned a moment ago. Um, I'm also the, these days I kind of cycle in and out between doing experimental things like that and doing Tai Chi Chu, the um, kind of thing derived from Tai Chi that I mentioned, which is not really martial and does not have weapons. Okay, it's more suitable for my needs these days. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess to, to to build up this sort of foundation to draw in a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of interconnecting elements, there's a couple of questions I would ask, which is mm-hmm. one: what is the importance of a connection to the body for um, you know any sort of what we might consider spiritual growth? And then second mm-hmm. to that is what would you consider the current you know as we are in this climate Western relationship with the body to be and if you're probably in agreement with me that we neglect it why do you think it is that we have a, a massive mm-hmm. neglect about okay this? the okay uh, question number one um what 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 is or should be the connection between um body arts and spiritual practices that really depends on what kind of spiritual practice you're engaged in if you are if you are deeply committed to christian mysticism you probably don't need much body work because that's very much focused on um, the the body that matters. There is the glorified body of the resurrection, which you will have, you know, at such point as as God gives it to you. You know, you, you do need a certain amount of <clears throat> capacity to spend long hours on your knees in prayer. But other than that, there's not a lot of physical dimension. There are other modes of spiritual practice that require a great deal. It depends on to what extent you want to integrate the physical body into your spiritual disciplines. The physical body is a tool. It is it is the material expression of of our of our life in matter, if you will, and it can be used in various ways. It can be used in some very flexible and constructive ways, or some very simple ways. Pick your pick, but it's it's one of the tools in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. And some traditions use it use a lot of it. Some use very little. Um, the Western world has had a very problematic relationship to physical incarnation for a very long time. And you see this in, in, in several different ways. On the one hand, the sort of neglect and even loathing of the body that you get on the one hand in, in some varieties of Christian mysticism. On the other hand, these, these um, what's the transhumanist um, people who are babbling on about uploading their consciousness to, you know, uh, perfect robot bodies and all this kind of drivel. Um, and you know, um, and it's it's all it's based on a loathing of matter. There's a kind of Gnostic element here. The idea that being being material, having a body, is like being is entrapment. We're stuck. We're imprisoned. 
imprisoned in matter, and we have to, you know, flee from this this horrible material world to these to this, you know, abstract world of light, whether that is, you know, an, an other world on the far side of death, or whether it's a a bit of bad science fiction that um, Yuval Harari and people like that have uh, gotten obsessed with after you know too many bong hits or something. Um, it's that that's and that's you know. I suppose if that's what matter, if that's what works for you, that's what works for you. It seems profoundly stupid to me. Mm. Um, if you accept the idea that there is a divine presence or divine presences, God or gods, who have created the world and, and put us in it, and they are not, you know, evil Gnostic archons who are cackling over their, you know, are being imprisoned in matter, presumably we have bodies for a good reason. Mm. And, um, we have this tool, we have this, this amazing tool with its strengths and its limitations to work with. Um, as, as a druid, I don't find embodiment in matter to be particularly imprisoning. I don't find it to be a horrible burden, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, it, I actually rather enjoy it. And that being the case, maybe we can get good at it. Maybe we can learn how to use this tool a little better. But that is not the way the Western world has thought for the last 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. 2,000? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, since basically, since, not just the Bible of Christianity. If you read back in sort of late Greek philosophy, there's that same, you know, distrust of the body, the loathing of the terror of sex, sexuality. Oh, my God, you know, what is this horrible thing between my legs and where is it dragging me? Um, you, you find that as often in late pagan literature as you do in, in early Christian literature. But it, it was something that seized the imagination of a large part of the Western world. About yeah, you know, about two about two millennia ago, and it it remains in place. You have that notion that exist material existence is is a veil of tears. It's a horrible place to be stuck in a body. I mean, the three enemies of the Christian are the world, the flesh, and the devil. So your own physical embodiedness is equal to Satan as your enemy. That's what the tradition has. That that's what the tradition says. It seems crazy to me, but that's the way the Western world has thought for a very long time. Mm-hmm. What's the alternative? Uh, the alternative is, again, to, to assume that we have bodies for a very good reason. It's not for punishment. Mm. It's to look at bodies you know, as, as something that, as a tool, as an instrument, as a, as a mode of our being in the world. Um, Schopenhauer argues that the body is the form of our will. The body is the expression of our will in the grade of matter. And so it's, it's essential to who and what we are at this phase of our being, whatever comes afterwards, here and now, interacting with the body, working with the body, learning through the body is essential to, to health, to spiritual health as well as physical health. Even though you place it, you know, you know, obviously roughly two thousand years ago, do you do you see Rene Descartes, you know, the mind, the mind-body split, as sort of really solidifying and bolstering this attitude of, you know, the mind, the great seat of reason, and then the body, this, oh, and that other thing that we have, you know. <laughs> Well, he, the thing is, he was just rehashing stuff that, that had been said in other language, in a more theological language, for centuries before his time. Normally, and all that happens when an age of reason breaks out, as Descartes was one of the at the cutting edge of that, all that happens is that the basic religious ideas of a culture get pulled out of context. They have their serial numbers filed off, and they get presented as as rational deductions rather than as theological revelations. So the same mentality that led medieval saints to wear, you know, hair, shirts of hair cloth and treasure their lice and, um, and, and mortify the flesh, and sometimes in hideous ways, you see that intellectualized in Descartes and his successors, you know, where the mind and ugh, the body, what is this, what is this scummy thing that has gotten somehow hooked to my intellect, them dragging along the way of, you know, the car, uh, car from, you know, the husband of the, um, husband and wife just married have the tin cans rattling behind it mm-hmm. what you know i guess to take that 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 idea of the mind body split i mean what's your own um appreciation of what that is i mean obviously it's not going to be the dualist split is it just something more holistic you know where the conscious where consciousness is seated how do you what do you see that as, as okay being? um the first th- the first thing that i that i do 
um, in talking about the mind-body split is to relativize it by noting that we are more than a mind and a body. There is the mind, there is the body, there are various other things. In Western occult spirituality, we talk about different bodies. We have the physical body, the body of matter. We have the etheric body, the body of life force. We have the astral body, which is the body of imagination and concrete consciousness and so on. And these things form um, a spectrum, if you will. It's not, here's the mind, there's the body, and there's this vast gaping gulf between them. That is the thing that Descartes brought in more than anything else, the pretense that there's nothing in between, that the life force does not exist, that consciousness only exists as this little bubble of abstraction, that we don't have the kind of vivid, sensate, imaginal consciousness that we all, in fact, do. And... So you start, you, one starts by seeing this as a spectrum, not as a dualism. And it's a spectrum that goes up beyond mind, by the way. The mind as we know it is, is a, it's a fairly basic model. You know, it's, I, don't, I don't know if it's quite 1.0, but it's not much past 1.1 or maybe 1.12. Um, there are many modes of consciousness that rise far higher up that particular scale than we have ever gotten to. That, again, is something out of, out of Western tradition. And so once you put it in that context, it stops being this war of mind and body. It becomes, okay, here are these two among many parts of the self. And we can start integrating them. We can start looking at the mind and saying, okay, here is this, here's this capacity for abstract thought that we have. Neat. We can do neat things with it. It's not the be-all and end-all. Here's this, con- this capacity for vivid, sensate, imaginal concrete thought that we have where we can dream and we can envision and we can have these experiences we can feel here's these emotions that's a world into in and of itself um here's the world of life force here's the world of breath and of prana and chi and all those things and you know, orgone and all these things which are all pretty much the same thing that are not supposed to exist that have been forbidden from existing by a lot of well-paid scientists, and that nonetheless still refuse to go away, and that form a constant part of our environment. And then we have this material um, dimension to ourselves, this material dimension to the world of our experience, and we interact with that also. So we have all these different things to play with. We have all these different tools to use. And rather than getting in a fuss about whether this one is better than that one or that one is better than this one, well, what do you want to do? So you know you don't you don't use a saw to hammer nails and you don't use a hammer to saw boards. Okay, you use your your material body for some things and and so on. But go on. Well, I was going to say, do, do you see then the the reason why we we've become so averse, other than a lot of money behind it, usually become mm-hmm. especially in the West, so averse to chi, prana, life force, orgone, whatever it may be, is because ultimately at that point you have to accept something where. Reason is no longer the complete controller of it, so perhaps mm-hmm. we aren't the center of all things again. So brush that aside and mm-hmm. carry that's, on. That's an important part of it. That's a very important part of it. That you know, if you once you accept the idea of the spectrum, you realize that the mind is not at one end. Hmm. The mind is actually more or less at the middle, and there are many things above that. And of course, the Western, the great you know, typical feature of Western industrial consciousness is this crackpot delusion that we are the summit of evolution we are the most important thing that ever was and bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, please there's another part to it though which is actually one of those places where history um influences consciousness very powerfully in the in in the process by which the scientific revolution was accepted into western societies Descartes' little act of erasure, his insistence that there's dead matter and then there's abstract mind and nothing in between, please, that was a compromise that could be accepted between the religious establishment and the rising capitalist or in those days mercantilist classes um, of the 17th century. Because you had that, you had, of course, in 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 Britain, you had the you had the English Civil War and all these little all all these you know minor little problems and equivalent events in other places where the church lost its control over the intellectual life of society, it lost its control over the economic life of society, um, 
And but it it could not simply be abolished. Not yet. It took um, things like the Russian Revolution or the French Revolution ultimately to do that. But it had to let go of a large section of its control. And so how do we divide the spoils between the church, which can't simply be eliminated, and the rising mercantilist, ultimately capitalist classes? You do it along the lines of mind and matter. You give education and the intellectual life over to the church. You keep material life, economic life in the hands of the rising classes. You draw a hard line between them. Isaac Newton played an important role in that. In you know, in setting up a world in which a sort of two-story world, in which yes, there's action at a distance. Yes, there's this mysterious thing called gravity, and we can use that to justify the claim that there are other like you know mysterious forces. But they are perfectly mathematical. They are perfectly rational. They all belong to this one narrow category, which we call mind. And then everything else is just lumps of matter bumping into each other in the void. And we hand that over to the capitalist classes. And so that division, the splitting of the spoils in the 17th and and 18th centuries in European culture, ended up becoming a template. That political and economic division became a cultural and ultimately cognitive template that was imposed for centuries thereafter on Western thinking. Um, I have an article in in one of my books of essays called uh, The Historical Origins of the Mind-Body Problem that talks about this in great detail and, and explains how it was that a compromise between you know elite classes in in conflict got turned into the basic cognitive template that we have as as human beings in the western world mm-hmm. and what's i guess what's really lost in that is this this you know it's a very rough approximation of a large idea but what's lost in that is this life force and what sort of mm-hmm. i guess um we sort of touched on it a little bit but what sort of societal symptoms do you see especially in the way people think once that once not only is that pushed aside but it's it's just assumed as not a not even a thing doesn't exist yeah 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 we we erase the entire idea it you can't get rid of it it keeps on boiling back up <laughs> whether in in the form of um, alternative medicine or popular culture, the force. <laughs> what are we talking about in this Star Wars cliche anyway? We're talking about the life force. And so it's all over the place, but nobody, you know, we don't talk about it as a reality. We have to pretend that it's not real. On the one hand, this enables the delusion that we can plan the world. That, or specifically we. We is one of those very touchy, very, very <laughs> evasive words here that Members of the elite classes, members of the privileged classes can plan the world and have it obey. Because if the world is nothing but dead matter, you know, lumps of dead matter bumping into each other in the void, then it, then it has to do what it's told, right? Mm. If there's a life force, if there's a continuum, if, you know, if the force is with you or not with you, as the case may be, maybe not. And we see this, this same sort of top-down fantasy of control pervasive. We see it in medicine. Um, most modern medicine is an attempt to tell the body what to do. You, you, you're going to bludgeon it with surgery. You're going to bludgeon it with drugs. You're going to shove it this way and that way. And the mere fact that the body responds homeostatically, that it, that it doesn't just react, it responds, it adjusts, is an endless frustration to the medical industry because no matter what they do, the body won't behave like a lump of dead matter. And adding insult to injury, you have all of these you know, strange crackpots like Wilhelm Reich, who are healing people um, of serious illnesses using something that does not and cannot exist and must not exist, and we won't talk about it, the fact that it works. <clears throat> so, yeah. Um, it's part of the whole, this whole sort of dualism of late industrial society, where everything is divided into you know, um, Abstract, abstract mind and dead matter, where our society is supposedly divided into the, the, the smart people, the, the managerial class, the good people who know what to do and tell everyone else what to do, and everyone else should just follow orders. They don't. They know better. They know that the people on top are actually clueless, <laughs> that they're living in an imaginary world with their own construction and trying to make it behave, and it's not behaving. So we end up with all of these squabbles and conflicts where the managerial classes are shrieking in outrage because the world will not abide by their orders. The life force is part of that. 
The life force is, is a large part of what we call intuition. A, the life force is a lot of what feeds into collective consciousness, the fact that people will sense the vibes of something, to use the terminology of a vanished decade, and um, maybe act in response to that or maybe back away. You know, it's it's because we don't accept the existence of the life force because we as a culture pretend that the life force doesn't exist, the imaginal realm doesn't exist, the whole vast space between abstract mind and dead matter doesn't exist, that we end up making so many stupid mistakes and, and creating so many self-inflicted problems. Mm. I guess just as a very quick digression, do you, do you see then Reich's organ just basically as him as someone who couldn't go the whole hog and admit that it was you know it was a spiritual thing because he he would adhere to the fact that it has nothing to do with you know yeah. quote unquote the occult right yeah well the, the i mean reich reich's his story was such a tragedy because here he is he's coming out of a very hardcore materialist background he i mean he was a marxist for heaven's sakes um, he could only see religion and occultism as as obscurantism, as um, you know, as as these these bizarre fictional narratives created by a ruling class to impose their will on the world. And yet, he was honest in his research. He started studying. You know, he was he was a, a, a psychologist. He was well. He was a medical doctor who got into Freudian psychotherapy and who studied sex and became really focused on understanding sex and that led him step by step to understanding that there's something that is that is exchanged between bodies when they have sexual relations and it's not something that's quite physical as we know it and of course it just unfolded from there but he could never avail himself of the of the resources of the traditions the western world has has which on the one hand could have given him the guidance he needed to to put his work into a broader context. On the other hand, could have given him fair warning of what kind of what kind of mess he was walking into. Mm-hmm. And instead, he walked he walked straight into it and you know died in prison. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think in a way his because he probably because he didn't have that openness to you know understand religion and uh, the mystical sincerely it's probably a complete naivety on his part to think that anything mm-hmm. was going to happen you know well if, if we're yeah. all being sincere scientists then you will just take my research <laughs> at face value right i think it was almost a, exactly. a childlike naivety of, of yeah, oh well exactly. scientists and actually do adhere to the scientific method and then the sudden realization that ah, no, they don't, they don't. <laughs> and in fact if he had if he had been open to looking at what happened in mesmer if he was open to, look, to looking at what happened to Reichenbach or, you know, dozens of others, he would have gone, oh, boy, <laughs> I guess I need to be a little more um, evasive about this. I need to be a little more careful not, you know, to keep off the radar screens of the, of, of the, the medical industrial complex and the state. And he would have lived out his life, and um, you know, would, heaven knows what he would have accomplished. Yeah. And of course, the man who who did that almost to a degree unfathomable, but of course, the cat's out of the bag now. Carl Jung, I've got to hand it to mm-hmm. him. Oh yeah, I don't know oh, how he man- I don't know how he managed to hide the fact he was just literally a magician for those years. He was, <laughs> yeah, the guy, the guy was an occultist, but no, he Jung Jung was Jung was smart. Jung was whip smart. He understood what happens to people who stray too far. He knew that. I mean, I'm. Sh- I, I don't happen to know that he was. Um, that I, I don't. I don't recall reading any discussion in print of uh, of his in his writings of Reichenbach and Mesmer and so on. But the fact is, he knew his way around the occult movement of his time. He knew it. He was exquisitely attuned to it. He studied astrology. Um, he studied alchemy. He was in contact with people who knew this stuff. And so, yeah, he very clearly figured out, okay, I can get away with this. I can talk about the gods as long as I claim they're art- archetypes internal to the to the human mind. I can talk about talismans as long as I insist that they have to be done spontaneously as a product of the, of the unconscious. And, and, and. He, he is great. I, I'm hoping now that um, depth psychology is, is really losing its grip in the and what, what, what's left of its grip in the medical profession. I'm hoping that Jung's thought really gets picked up by occultists and people do things with it because it's a great system of occult philosophy. And I think it, once the 
once the necessary camouflage is scrubbed off, I think it could become a major resource for the occultists of the next you know, thousand years or so. Is there any is there any other major figures who you feel are are also hiding behind camouflage and you really see as just magicians? Or um Well, you have to go back a little ways. Um Isaac Newton comes to mind. Mm. Uh he the, the stuff that he did that revolutionized physics, that was what he did on weekends to relax. Mm-hmm. He was mostly interested in alchemy. Mm. He was a very good alchemist. Um, we have some of his lab notes. Betty Jo Teeter Dobbs did two some years ago, did two books on basically working with his lab notebooks of alchemy and saying, wow, so he accomplished all of these various stages of the alchemical work. And, oh, wow, um, we don't know what to make of this, but we're actually going to talk about it. <clears throat> um, He's one that he's one that comes immediately to mind. There's this very funny, unintentionally funny essay by John Maynard Keynes, um, talking about Newton as the last of the magicians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Keynes would wish. Yeah, Keynes is the well, absolute person people, who would wish for that. No, everybody thought. I mean, the, the the delusion that magic packed up and went away. That if you just yell about rationalism enough um all the all the mages will just kind of slink away into the night it's very widespread um i've been having a lot of fun recently um looking at um oh come on i'm going to freeze on his name the disenchantment of the world um Faber? the yeah yeah max weber the spirit the 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 um protestant spirit and the the protestant whatever it is in the spirit of capitalism mm. and yeah and the thing is it, as, as what was it, um, Jason Josephson Storm pointed out in his book, recent book, The Myth of Disenchantment, that um, Weber knew occultists. He knew people in, in, that when he was writing this, he was hanging out with people who were practicing magic. The world had not been disenchanted at all. What he was doing was, descript, was not descriptive, prescriptive. He was saying, well, the world ought to be disenchanted. We ought to experience the world this way, even though you know, this is in Germany in the early 20th century, it was crawling with <laughs> occultists. And, you know, most people had at least dabbled. And so, so you have this, this whole thing, this whole pretense that magic doesn't exist anymore, that we've outgrown that, even though, I mean, one of the stats that I love quoting to people is right now in America today, more people make their living as astrologers than as astronomers. <laughs> By a significant number. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise yeah. me. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, I guess, moving into the swordsmanship, but there's one mm-hmm. sort of question that I think is actually, it's connected to what we've spoken about so far with this foundation, with the body, because with the swordsmanship, we will have this sacred geometry. So possibly, mm-hmm. possibly not life force in a sense, but there is this sacred, connection to the sacred, right? Mm-hmm. Now, one, one thing that I think is so important always to emphasize um, with regard to, to bodily work of any sort, and I, I think this does apply to the swordsmanship, is the idea of relaxation. So mm-hmm. in, in the West, I, you know, I, and I've, as you might have been able to tell, I've been reading a lot of Reich lately. And the more I read mm-hmm. Reich, the more I've been reading Reich, the more I walk around and see, wow, Everyone is a character big, every, armor. Gosh. Yeah, everyone yes. is quite literally. You go up to them with a knitting needle, and like pierce mm-hmm. this this sort of veil of tension. Like everyone is so mm-hmm. tense. And with respect to pretty much any, you know, I, I practiced Shotokan karate uh, quite mm-hmm. a while ago, and mm-hmm. I've done other various bodily things, mm-hmm. blah blah blah, or forms with the body, whatever you want to call it. The, the one of the first lessons you learn is when you put your arm out straight, or if they say put your arm out at a horizontal or a vertical, the way to do that fully is you actually have to learn to relax. And so my question oh, yeah. really is, why can't we relax? <laughs> <laughs> um, partly because of that same gap between mind and body. That same, we don't, we insist that the body is supposed to just obey the mind. We don't get into that imaginal space, into that vital life force space, which is where relaxation can happen. Instead, we're constantly sort of sitting, you know, as though we're sitting in the in, in the driver in an imaginary driver's seat, trying to make the body lurch forward along its routines. We don't even most of us don't even feel how tense we are, because we've cut those ties those those ties of communication. We've numbed ourselves, um, 
and that's that's you know that's inherent in the culture that's inherent in this whole flight from matter if you don't if if you don't enter into your embodiment if you don't feel your if you don't feel the life force in yourself if you don't feel your own body clearly then yeah tensions pile up because you never just let them go also of course right now as industrial society continues along the arc of its decline people generally have a lot to be stressed out about mm-hmm. and if they don't know how to relax they don't know how to just take a moment and or more than a moment and unwind and let go of that tension yeah it's going to pile up mm-hmm. and what worries me with that is the forms of relaxation that we're being given well not, not myself but a lot of people who have been part of mm-hmm. quite normal culture you know the new corporate mindfulness is that's that's turning, <laughs> you know you look at the statistic that of that it's turning out to be far more dangerous um because ultimately you're you're it's almost like a bodily form of stockholm syndrome it's like here's how to relax within a situation which is actually very stressful and harmful yeah. to you and that's yeah that's no, dangerous. It's, it's, yeah it's simply it's simply in yet an, a slightly a slightly less chemical form of tranquilizer <laughs> and the thing, the thing that I would point out is that mindfulness meditation, as it has been marketed, not as it is in the original, in mm-hmm. its original setting in, in Theravada Buddhism. It's you know, it's part of a whole system. It's one exercise out of many. It's it has a very powerful use in that context. Pulled out of context, turned into this corporate schlock. Um, it doesn't actually relax you. It teaches you not to notice how tense you are. Because you just let the let these thoughts and perceptions go whistling off in the wind, rather than atta- rather than actually engaging with them, you just let them pass by. So you let these stressors just flow on through you, and they do, and they leave plenty of stress behind. But you don't notice that because you're blissing out. Mm-hmm. So it it really is not an effective um, way of um, of healing, but it is addictive, of course. And that's that's mm-hmm. one of the things that's made it so popular. Because you know, if you are, if you have convinced yourself that you have to stay in an insupportable situation, there you are in your corporate job. You're being flogged by your, your by in all but the physical senses <laughs> by the people higher than you are in the in the hierarchy. You have to perform. You're constantly being criticized, constantly being put down, constantly. You know, you have to do all of this extra work for which you're getting no additional pay. Your entire life is gurgling down the drain for the benefit of a bunch of of, of the of the rich SOBs in the um, in the corner offices. If you convince yourself you have to do that, you can numb yourself to it with mindfulness meditation and just kind of keep on going. And you just let any any troubling thought that surfaces just whiffle on by, and so it doesn't bother you. It's very convenient if you you know if you've convinced yourself you have to be a corporate drone. Mm-hmm. Now there was I think which. I forget which of the online humor mags it was that offering a helpful piece of advice for, you know, for office workers. The best thing they can do to relieve their stress is to get up from the desk, walk out the door and never come back. (laughs) (laughs) It was a hilarious little exercise article. And and, and of course, that's, that's true. And a lot of people are doing that right now. That's one of the one of the things that one of the ways in which the way that the COVID epidemic was handled has turned out to be just stunningly an own goal for the corporate system. You know, you shut everything down, you throw millions of people out of work, you let millions of other people work from home where they don't have the boss breathing down their neck all the time, and then after two years, you expect them all to come back and just pick up the way they were, they were going. In the meantime. All those, you know, many, many of those people you laid off have found other ways to make a living. They're not interested in coming back. And a lot of the people who were sitting at home have had time to sit and realize, I'm wasting my life. They're not coming back either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe that that humor article had more of a point than its writers realized. Mm. Well, we have, a, we have a huge foundation now. And I guess to just segue basically into the swordsmanship, uh, mm-hmm. The basic question would be, who is this? Who is this peculiar man, Gerard Thibault, and what exactly <coughs> is the Academy of the Sword? Because ultimately, there isn't really, is there any anything like this uh, been written? To be honest, since because this, this is no, basically this, the this most is, complex this is the most, manual of swordsmanship yeah, ever ever written in any language. Um, yeah, Gerard Thibault 
was a, um, we call him Belgium, Belgian nowadays. Belgium didn't exist as a country in his time. It was part of the Spanish Netherlands. But he was a Belgian, um, a young Belgian man. Uh, not He, he had, was, had some kind of congenital health problem. I don't think anyone knows what. And his doctor advised him to take up fencing as a form of exercise. And he did. And he got fairly good at it. He uh, studied with Lambert von Sommeren, who was one of the one of the hot fencing teachers in in Antwerp at that time. And then, because his family was in the wool trade, he, they were able to send him down to the south of France to San Lucar de Barameda, which was the center of Spanish repair fencing at the time. And the Spanish system of fencing was very much into geometry. It was. It did not look like Errol Flynn. It did not look like the sort of modern fencing. It was a very different thing. And um, Thibault handled it extremely well. He was he was very good at it. And when he came back to Antwerp, he came back to the Spanish Netherlands and and to Holland and so on, which was in, I believe independent by then. Um, he demonstrated that he was literally better than anyone else in anyone else in the place. He did this. Uh, he did a demonstration before I think it was Prince Maurice of Nassau, and cleaned the clocks of all of the best fencers in the Netherlands. And won first prize at a very prestigious tournament, just, just knocking people off right and left, and you know ended up with um, with lots of students and lots of interest and plenty of funding from um, you know people like the King of France and the Holy Roman Emperor and so on uh, to write his book. Mm-hmm. So he wrote this book, which chronicles in incredible detail exactly how you practice this kind of fencing. Um, and it's it's got a monomania for detail like nothing else I've ever seen. There's this geometrical pattern that shows exactly where each footfall goes. There are these ways of learning the amount of pressure to put on a sword that divides in what is, I think it's nine different divisions, and the sword itself is divided into 12 portions to tell you where it should cross the other guy's sword and so on. It's, we're not just talking the fort and the foible here. It's very precise. And he just goes on for page after page after page of Alexander and Zachary. Those are the two characters that, that fight. And Zachary always ends up getting beaten and usually ends up dying horribly. Um, by about, you know, about step six, there's a sword going through his skull or something, something charming like that. But it's an extraordinarily detailed thing. It is very heavily based on Renaissance geometrical thought. There's a lot of underlying sacred geometry. Um, there is an, there are extended quotes from it from um, such <clears throat> um, at the time very very loaded sources as uh, Cornelius Agrippa's three books of Ecclesiastical philosophy, and so that was the book that I stumbled across and got a microfilm copy from the British Library and translated. So, is it overt that it, this is sacred geometry, or does Thibault sort of just say, "Look, this is just geometry," and, and was it you? It's, oh, was it you that noticed it, or was he never was he talking to a, to a silent? Was he? Do you think he was talking to a an audience, a known, a knowing audience? He certainly some of the audience knew, and that's why he included the refer, you know, the quotes from Cornelius Agrippa and so on. There was definitely that sort of wink, wink, nod, nod here and there, but he never mentions occultism at any point he is he, he he this was a time where that was not safe to do and he was you know we were talking about how about how, how Jung managed to play that game Thibault played the same game in a different field he played it brilliantly mm-hmm. so I guess for those that don't know I mean what just a quick overview I mean what exactly is sacred geometry Okay, sacred geometry is the use of geometry as a system of symbolism to express spiritual realities. <laughs> well, there you go. You've practiced that yeah. line. Exactly. <laughs> well, I've, I've been asked that question many times. And Thibault was working with a particular... There are two broad categories of Western sacred geometry, the ad quadratum and the ad triangulum. And there are practitioners occasionally get got in fights with each other in like the building of cathedrals and so on. Um, Thibault is very much ad quadratum. His mysterious circle is developed from a square. It uses the various square and square root of two geometries that unfold from that. If you have a background in sacred geometry, you're going to look at his mysterious circle and go, wow, this is cool. Because it includes a lot of meaning. 
So let's uh, just to give, I guess, a rough approximation or rough rough idea. Let's uh, just to just to pose a question. Let's say, for instance, within Thibaut's work here, you know, you have to do steps A, B, C, and D, and in, mm-hmm. in that sense, that it's a sacred geometrical pattern. Would that whatever you want to call that still work if one didn't know of the sacredness of the act? Um, apparently, yes. Mm-hmm. The one of the reasons that I was able to get, get well two successive contracts to publish this was that when I had the first eight chapters written, I did a spiral bound version of it and um, made it available by mail, just advertised in a few places, and people started taking um, the the methods and practicing them, and taking to historical reenactment societies and the Society for Creative Anachronism that we have over here, for example, and cleaning up the floor with people who who had only learned sort of the vaguely modern fencing school of of methods. They were extremely effective, and so it actually works. And these were people who did not who who did not have a, a noticeable grasp of the of the esoteric dimension. <clears throat> um, there there are people teaching this stuff in schools these days. There are people who took up the book or some of the other Spanish books also, um, and have done some amazing things with them. Mm-hmm. And the foundation of this, I believe, is probably Pythagoras. Um, Pythagoras as uh, yeah P- Pythagorean geometry as interpreted and understood by the geometers of the Renaissance. Mm. Not not simply uh, <laughs> basic secular mathematics. No. Oh, no. Hmm. Okay. So I guess it's very difficult to expand upon the, the idea of this geometry because it's it's this is why I wanted to have that foundation of the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the connection between matter and spirit because mm-hmm. this is exactly where this is happening. And so in what sense within these sacred geometric patterns what is happening in this connection between matter and what it, what is what is happening is that from the renaissance point of view from the point of view of renaissance pythagoreanism geometry mathematics is what mediates between spirit and matter we were talking about the western notion that that the abstract mind is the pinnacle of existence the Rena- people in the renaissance knew better the mind is the midpoint and so these abstract patterns enable spiritual forces to be embodied in the material world by way of movement, by way of position and posture, by way of a sword, um, which, you know, a rapier, a straight line uh, penetrating a surface. And if your geometry is correct, you survive, and the other guy does not. Do you survive for tactical reasons or reasons which are, we could say, above? The two are not. The two are not distinct within that system. Okay. The tactics unfold from the attunement of the geometry to spiritual realities. So, extremely, uh, uh, I guess, difficult uh, philosophical question. In what sense does this have connections to like ideas of you know predestination or, or determinism and free will? You know, in the sense of giving yourself over to, well, not giving yourself mm-hmm. over, but being in tune with that something which is sacred, and mm-hmm. therefore from that you live. Ultimately, for me, would beg uh, put sorry not beg put forth these big questions of how is that connected with you know free will and whether or not things are determined. <laughs> well, in in either it, the. It actually it actually ducks the question because on the one hand, if you attune yourself to those patterns, you were you know if 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 you are a determinist, you attune yourself to those patterns because you were destined to do so. On the other hand, if you believe in free will, um, you willingly attune yourself to the pattern better than the other guy, and so he lives, so you live, and he doesn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's as, you know it's very much as though. Um, here, here, here is a tra- here is a um, a traffic sign. It mm-hmm. says, you know, um, bridge out ahead. Okay, mm-hmm. there is no bridge there. If you continue driving this, your car is going to go in. You're going to go into the river and you're going to drown. Okay, mm-hmm. here is an exit. The exit is also marked. Is it determinism or free will that you turn on that exit? Either way, I ask, what do you think? Um, my well. My basic, my basic presupposition is that the human brain is um, about the size of a meatloaf and not much smarter than one. 
Um, the universe is, you know, umpty trillion light years. One of these cannot understand the other. We do not have the cognitive capacity to answer questions like the whole determinism and free will thing. Um, we we don't know yet. Maybe we will someday, but we don't. And rather than chasing our tails around like, you know, an overexcited puppy, we can simply say, well, the universe appears to allow us a certain amount of free will and to impose a certain number of determinations. So somewhere in that middle ground, let's see what we can make happen. So it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of a pragmatic evasion of, of um, questions that we don't seem to be able to solve. If only more people could just say, I don't know, I think yes. we live in a yes. better world. Even mm-hmm. philosophers. Maybe that's why I love Wittgenstein so much, because he's trying, but really beneath his work all the time, he's saying, look, we're never really going to know. But here's a good, mm-hmm. here's a good shot. <laughs> Same with Schopenhauer, I guess. All the, all the ones. Yeah. yeah. Well, Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer fell, now and again, fell victim to, to the conviction that he really had figured it out. And that's one of the, that's one of the weaknesses in his work. Um, it can be salvaged very readily from that. You just have to sit back, you know, say, no, Arthur, have a beer. <clears throat> we don't know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what, I mean, you know, the fact that this is such a peculiar relic, an object of mm-hmm. history, this book, mm-hmm. what, what role does it play today, if, if any, amidst you know, those in the know of swordsmanship? Um, okay, there are, there are people who have taken up um, historical European martial arts as, as a martial arts practice for all the usual reasons. There are people who work with Thibaut with Thibault's system or with other system, other related systems of rapier fencing, in the same way that you know people pick up um, other martial arts weapons in a, at a time when wars are fought with cruise missiles. Um, what further might be possible with it? That's an interesting question. Um, I was I was very I, I I felt that it was important to get it out there, to get it translated, and to get it into the hands of people who might be able to make good use of it. And I also felt that um, you know the Certainly, the discipline of learning the geometrical dimensions of it and of of working out the geometries was very useful to me in developing my understanding of sacred geometry. Um, what else might, it might be being used for? Well, I, I don't, you know, I don't have an elf on a shelf in each of the um, each of the the libraries where, or you know, room, bookshelves where people have these and what they're doing with it is an interesting question. I hope they're doing something interesting. And you know, in in in. Thibault's era of in in his day, with regards to swordsmanship, would most swordsmanship, and I guess the history of swordsmanship in general, would have had this, uh, you know, deeper or, or divine foundation, or was this something, um, you know, that that he clearly devised? It really seems to have varied. Mm-hmm. There were always people for whom um, the the warrior arts, however conceptualized, always had a spiritual foundation. You see that even in the sort of the sort of symbolism and and, and the religious dimensions of knighthood in Europe, um, and uh, you know organizations like the Knights Templar and so on that had this this sort of religious concept of of combat. But you also always had people who were simply they wanted to know how to fight because they wanted to know how to fight, or because they wanted to win, or because they wanted to keep someone else from killing them. And so we have, as with so many human things, we have a wide range, and we ha- and people had then a very wide range of possibilities. You know, from the grittiest, grottiest, most selfish and materialist reasons up to profound spiritual states. And you have your choice. You know, you can you can approach swordsmanship from any of these angles, just as you can you can approach anything else from any of these angles. You can you can approach writing novels from the angles of what is going to make me a lot of money, and you can approach it from. I have something I want to say that is that I think is meaningful. I'm going to communicate it to the world, or what, or anything in between, or off to various sides. Mm-hmm. Are you are you planning on um, you know writing any more about swordsmanship, or is that something that um, I don't know? <laughs> I I only I don't have anything. Um, I don't have my eyes on anything of the sort right now. Um, I have I have a stack of other things to do, but it would be fun to do something else with swordsmanship in the future. I, it's always an entertaining field, and there are all there there is all of that memory of um, trashy fantasy novels in my childhood and brandishing, you know, plastic swords as an eight year old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I, it's 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 odd to me. Maybe this is a silly thing to say that 
So many people, it's probably back to Riking character armor, right? So many people don't realize you can just go buy a sword and practice swordsmanship. It's one of those mm -hmm. modern, one of those modern things, right? Of, well, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, and yet people do. As with magic, there's a huge subculture of people who do things with swords, whether it's with Asian swords, with European swords, with um, you know all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of swords out there and a lot of people who, who do practices with them and who practice various traditions rooted in combat, you know, waving around sharp pointy, you know, sharp pointy iron things. And so as with magic, it's something that, well, we don't do anymore except that a lot of us do. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, yeah, is, is there anything you'd like to add about swordsmanship or these two books that, uh, that we haven't touched on? Well, one of the things that, that inspired me to get an interest in the martial arts, other than, you know, the, the eight-year-old trashy fantasy memories and, and watching too many reruns of Kung Fu in my misspent teen years, um, one of the advantages that martial arts have that most Western esoteric traditions don't is that it's very easy to discover who has actually been doing the work and who is simply mm -hmm. a pompous blowhard. You know, if you land a punch, it is very clear that a punch has been landed. Mm -hmm. If there is, you know, if the two of you spar and one of you ends up flat on your back going, <laughs> and the other one's going, what? I just, ta I just tapped you. You know somebody's been doing the work and somebody hasn't. In too much Western esotericism, we have a lot of people who are just, you know, who make a big deal about being powerful mages, blah, blah, blah. And one suspects that in many cases they probably can't magic their way out of a white paper bag. But how are you going to tell? Mm. So the great thing about martial arts is that they have a, a filter against certain kinds of, of stupidity. And that's one of the things I, I, I have tried to encourage. One of the reasons I've tried to encourage martial practices within um, Western esoteric spirituality because it really does teach you that there is a difference between doing the work and just kind of play-acting, role-playing. And that, you know, getting a fist in the when a fist lands on someone in someone's face, it matters. Mm -hmm. You can't avoid reality in that sense. You can't avoid reality. And so that kind of reality testing is unfortunately not as common as it ought to be in the Western tradition. And I'd like to see much more of it. Mm -hmm. um, so what are you working on at the moment? Um, let's see. Right now I've got... Um, the second volume of a fiction series, I'm doing a series of um, basically occult detective novels. And the difference between them and the run-of-the-mill occult detective novels is that all of the magic and all of the, all of the spooky phenomena in them is real. It's all stuff that people do. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it, has, it is not making for less suspense or what have you, but I'm having a great, uh, serious fun time with that. Volume 1, um, The Witch of Criswell is the title, will be out in um, spring of next year. Mm -hmm. And Volume 2, The Book of Haatan, is, is currently underway. So I'm working on that. I'm working on another volume in the same series as The Way of the Golden Section and the Occult Philosophy Workbook. Um, I'm working, and the, those, are, those are my two main projects right now. I've got a lot of little projects as well. Okay, okay. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, Spirit and the Sword. So both of these books are still still available, or is the Spirit and the Sword? In the I, they, they are they are still available, as far as I know. Okay. Well, I'll be sure to put the links for both of them in the description below. Excellent. Thank you. And um, yeah, it's been a pleasure once again. From Michael Griffin. As always.
This episode, I'm joined once again by writer John Michael Greer to discuss his book, The Spirit and the Sword, and Gerard Thibault's book, The Academy of the Sword, alongside discussions on Jung, Reich, Reichenbach, sacred geometry, the body, and more. I'd like to wish all my followers, subscribers, listeners, and patrons a Merry Christmas. And if you've enjoyed anything I've made this year and would like to support the podcast and gain access to some exclusive content, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy.